Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. On this episode of the Powercast, we're going to stalk the tricksters. And I have to tell everybody, David Biedney is not one of them. <laughs> no, I'm not nearly that interesting, apparently. I don't know. Some people think you are. No, apparently not. But we have Christopher O'Brien, who's been on the show before, and he has a book out called Stalking the Tricksters. He's interesting. Yes, Skyler he is. Thinks so. Yeah. <laughs> right. And the subtitle is Shapeshifters, Skinwalkers, Dark Adepts, and 2012. Oh, not 2012. Why, Chris? Why? No, it's uh, Y2-2012K. Come on. A, a true trickster event in the making. So now, is the implication here that anything that's even slightly esoteric or weird is all kind of being clumped into this bag called the trickster bag because it's I, I think when people approach this and they try to describe the weird aspect of so much of what surrounds the paranormal the term trickster comes up and it, and it almost I think for a lot of people it almost sounds like it's kind of become a catch-all phrase you think that's true well yes and no um, I think first of all most people don't really have a have a real kind of grounded firm understanding of what a trickster or the tricksters are. I think you have to first understand the definition of this particular energy or manifestation uh, before you can then actually lump anything in and blame it on something uh, like the trickster. Uh, it's very dense material and I think as a catch-all phrase, yeah, it sounds convenient if you really don't know what you're talking about, but uh, if you do some research and you really get into the subject and look at the energy form with an open mind and, uh, you know, with a, um, I don't know, uh, being grounded in, you know, trying to look at paranormal phenomena and, and the interrelatedness, you know, interrelations between various phenomena, then you might, might slowly understand why I have even attempted <laughs> to to create a new definition for, for trickster energy. Now, sort of one of the things that you brought up there that I think people kind of lock into is that there's this idea that different aspects of the paranormal are somehow related or connected or they're related in terms of causality. So that, you know, for example, um, you have these areas where you have UFO sightings and then those are somehow mixed together with Bigfoot sightings, and there's a certain sect of people that say, okay, this is now, it almost sounds like someone is trying to murky the waters to make it so that we can't understand any of this, and you get a conspiracy kind of a theory element to it. Then you have this idea that, well, maybe if you somehow soften the boundaries of what we consider to be our dimensional framework, that these different things all suddenly manifest because maybe these things are all coming from the same non-space that uh, that surrounds us, and and this is where I think you know it, it gets a little it gets a little dangerous because what ends up happening invariably, regardless of the actual connection, um, you get the situation like with the Skinwalker Ranch uh, site and the research that went on there where at one point it looks like something that's interesting is going on, and then it looks like, well, it doesn't really, we don't really know what we're looking at at that point because it just kind of gets murky. So 
if we want to talk about the trickster historically, I mean, where do you actually start to define what that means? Well, I, the first place that you have to start is is to look at the actual uh, term, uh, which I don't really feel completely comfortable with. I, I think it, it, there's a lot of problems uh, when you look at this subject because of the knee-jerk response. I think that people have just to the very the very term trickster. Uh, right. First of all, it's a it's a fairly recent word uh, in the English language. It was actually thought up by an anthropologist named Daniel Britton back in the 1870s, and I tried to find the actual first use usage of the term, and it's funny. He he refers to the term, but I can't find any evidence of where he actually coined the term. So you know, the very uh, inception of the of the word is 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 kind of uh, cloudy, and, and we really can't nail it down when when he actually came up with that term. So. I think that just by its very nature, the trickster, um, even in terms of the definition and the actual word, uh, I think that there's there's tricksterism going on even there. But um, I think that you really have to start with, and, and I kind of made a, a point of this at the beginning of the book, that I took Carl Jung's uh, archetype, the concept of the archetype, and how Jung applied uh, the concept of the archetype to various uh, primordial forms that that Jung thought um, inhabit the collective unconscious, and basically Jung, of course, was um, you know a star pupil of Sigmund Freud, and he took Freud's idea of the unconscious a step further by coming up with the idea that possibly there's a collection or a constellation of basic symbols that exist uh, collectively in the uh, collective unconscious and some of these archetypes um, are like the shadow, the anima, the animus, uh, the trickster, gods, goddesses, the hero. There's a number of them that Jung postulated are found in the deep unconscious, cultural unconscious of, of, of all peoples around the world and that we all share these basic primal symbols. And so I think for my purposes uh, in studying this particular form or energy, if you will, I kind of had to uh, to you know establish a starting point, and that's that's where I established my starting point is is with Jung's idea of of archetypal uh, symbols within the collective unconscious, and I, I think if you look at uh, at the actual subject, you'll find that it has various phases that it has gone through from prehistory from thousands and thousands of years ago to the present day. And one of the things that I, I encountered early on when I when I was you know doing my initial research into various anthropological views or definitions of what a, what an actual trickster form is, one thing that I found uh, you know right off was that most anthropologists all agree, if not all of them, uh, agree that the trickster is a static form, and that uh, most of these primal archetypes uh, that we have are, are, are fairly static in that they don't really evolve. And the other, the other thing that I found that most of these um, anthropologists share in terms of their thinking is that the trickster is unconscious, that it is not self-aware. And one of the first things that I did uh, in the book is refute that. You know, my thinking on this is that we live in an evolving universe and everything evolves uh, at, at some rate or another. And so I, I just automatically made the jump that the trickster is also evolving. And if the trickster is evolving, then perhaps the trickster is also becoming self-aware. 
And I think that this is a, a very important departure point that that allows me you know, to make leaps that I don't think have been made before in terms of looking at the trickster energy, looking at manifestations of tricksterism throughout history, and also establishing various stages, I think, that the trickster has gone through in this evolutionary process that it, it, it appears to me to be undergoing. So that's kind of where I think you have to start with it. It is a an ancient, ancient, probably the most ancient form or, or deep archetypal force uh, within the collective that actually has a face on it. The, the older archetypes, uh, like the shadow and the anima and the animus in the mother, for instance, don't particularly have like a face or, or a personality attached to them. Um, the mother, a good example would be the, the thousands of Venus figures that have been found in uh, paleo sites. Um, mm-hmm. Most of these uh, figures, uh, if not, I've never seen one actually that actually has facial features on it. So, the trickster is the first and the oldest of these primal forms that actually has a personification attached to it. So, that that well, that is the place that you got to start. Well, let's rewind there for a minute because part of what it sounds like you're describing. This is an attempt to understand what you mean by trickster. Is that it? It almost sounds like ancient humans created this mechanism of interacting with the elements of nature they didn't understand. And they imbued these elements of nature with powers because they saw that nature had an ability, uh, well before humans' technology, to control nature the way that we, to some extent, think we control it now. But we're talking about a time where uh, humans were much more uh, prone to the effects of, for example, the elements, where it, it seemed like the Earth had this incredible power over the destiny and the fate of humans and because of humans lack or what we think was their lack of technological sophistication that they then saw the earth and aspects of the earth and creatures of the earth um, as these mysterious things they didn't know about evolution they didn't have our scientific understanding so I mean you know you talk about archetypes I always go back to the aborigines and the rainbow serpent where you have this um, this very specific image that is related to a an earthly creature a serpent but is imbued with these mystical entities it's a rainbow serpent and supposedly it goes back to the idea of the formation of the universe it becomes part of their mythology for creation um and and we see that that you know the snake reappears over and over again yeah uh, you know like in in well Everything from biblical imagery to uh, the, you know the whole UFO enigma, where um, I remember early on seeing uh, um, illustrations of a supposed uh, an occupant encounter, uh, where these creatures were wearing suits, and on the suits was an embroidered logo of like a winged serpent, and that takes us to Quetzalcoatl and and, and you know that whole aspect of Mexican mythology, but. Um, what, I guess what I'm getting at there, Chris, is that are you differentiating this idea of the trickster with no face from humans' un- tr- attempts to understand nature and to imbue elements of nature with mythical qualities? Yes, I think partially yes. Uh, I think the easy answer would be yes. But I, I think you have to kind of look at how the trickster is is actually divided into three basic uh, categories. The, the earliest and most primordial category 
or manifestation, as you have been describing, uh, would be the anthropomorphized animal form that somehow changes Gaia or changes nature uh, for the betterment of humanity. And this form of trickster, I think, is the most ancient and the most primordial. And um, you have examples uh, worldwide. I mean, uh, I think the listeners really need to uh, be reminded here that, again, this is a worldwide phenomenon. And uh, well, give us not, some give us some examples of the history. Sure, say yeah, some references. There. Ex- exactly. Um, well, coyote, of course, is probably the most well known trickster, at least to us here in North America. Um, coyote is is not a trickster form found throughout. North America, but in the Southwest and uh, places where coyotes, I think, are, are, are most prevalent. Coyote has a special place uh, in Native American lore. And coyote is often uh, talked about in myths and legends um, as being a person. Um, and you have this interesting um, juxtaposition of coyote the animal and uh, little brother and older brother. Uh, often uh, humans are, are considered to be uh, related to coyote. And um, Coyote, of course, is is very uh, is an important figure in, in Native American creation myths. Another good example would be Raven. Raven is a trickster form that is uh, uh, very important in the West Coast uh, Native American tradition. And one of the things that Raven is is known for in these stories is that Raven was the one responsible for actually creating light. And uh, prior to to Raven, uh, humanity existed in a in a state of darkness, and Raven changed Gaia and um, introduced light as a way to you know, help humanity progress onward so that they would have a better quality of life. And, and there's, there's other examples of animal forms around the world. Anansi, the, the spider trickster, uh, is responsible for agriculture. This is an African form. Um, Anansi is, is responsible for agriculture, introduced the fishing hook. For instance, one of the things that you'll find uh, in looking at the, the primordial trickster forms is that they, the animal forms tend to change Gaia for the betterment of humanity. And then you kind of have this, this, this development or progression into a tragic hero type trickster who um, introduces uh, technology to humanity. And Loki, of course, the Scandinavian trickster uh, is an example of this, introduced the fishing net. Um, uh, Maui, one of the Kappas in the Polynesian tradition, uh, pushed the sun up further in the sky uh, so that humans had more daylight with which to utilize. Again, you have this this interesting attributional quality that uh, ancient man gave tricksters in terms of, of helping better their lives, uh, either by introducing technology or by causing, you know, s- somehow causing nature to uh, to change for the betterment of humanity. So these are the most ancient types of, of trickster forms. And then as, as we progress in our conversation, of course, we'll talk about some of the more uh, contemporary or, or you know, uh, not primordial uh, trickster types. You hear it on TV. You hear it on radio. Cash for gold. Yes, it's an enticing phrase during these challenging days, but the real question is how much cash are you going to get for your gold and silver? Are you going to get the best value? Well, you can get the best price from a company whose owners have decades of experience in the business. Welcome to Goldbug. The folks at Goldbug warn you that many of those high-budget gold buyers are paying far less than you deserve for your gold and silver. 
Goldbug will give you top dollar each and every time. To learn more, call 1-866-596-6134. That number again, 1-866-596-6134 for Goldbug. Or visit us online at goldbug.com. That's Goldbug with two Gs, goldbug.com. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Gedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with opportunities to stretch out and talk. We have Christopher O'Brien. He's author of a new book called Stalking the Tricksters, subtitled Shapeshifters, Skinwalkers, Dark Adepts, and 2012. Now, from listening to you, the trickster sounds like somebody I'd like to meet because they're helping us, not harming us. So where does the disconnect come to play here? Well, uh, you have, you know, for thousands of years, humanity existed in a very pastoral uh, matriarchy. You didn't have urban centers and and kings uh, riding herd over uh, urban centers like you, you see with the rise of the Mesopotamian and Harappan cultures. Um, so prior to the rise of urban culture, uh, the matriarchy, uh, I think, was kinder and gentler when it comes to tricksters. Uh, it's with the introduction of monotheism, with the rise of urban cultures and the rise of the king states. That's when you have the, the first real sign of the trickster being marginalized, I think, in, in the eyes of, 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 of various cultures. And uh, I think that's when, especially with the rise of monotheism, that's where the trickster was then marginalized and then, and then painted in a very negative way. Like, uh, for instance, the serpent in the Garden of Eden would be a classic example of one of the earliest trickster forms in the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition. Uh, the serpent tricked uh, Eve into eating the uh, uh, from the you know from the tree and, and gaining some form of, of illumination or enlightenment um, as a result. And of course, the the banishment from the Garden of Eden would be the the monotheistic sort of lesson that is imparted that that paints the trickster in a negative way. Uh, and you find this, I think, uh, in in all cultures, uh, tricksters. Uh, I think as as soon as you see a patriarchy rise and, and especially monotheism, uh, uh, you know, become established, then the trickster gets painted in a negative light. The trickster, by its very um, definition and its most basic sense, is a amoral force. It, it's neither good nor bad. It's e- it's neither black or white or positive or negative. It's it's a liminal force that is like in, in standing in the threshold between two rooms and it, it doesn't really have an agenda that's positive or negative it doesn't act in a way that that seems to have any foresight in other words it's like like your three-year-old nephew who's playing in the living room and then takes a bat and smacks his little sister on the head and doesn't understand why everybody gets upset and starts yelling at him because he doesn't realize that doing that is 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 a bad thing the trickster has been painted in a negative way i think uh again with the rise of uh you know monotheism and the patriarchy i think really was the first point in which the trickster became marginalized prior to that the trickster was very amoral uh neither good nor bad positive or negative black or white uh male or female It, it was just a force for change the trickster's main Job, I think, if if you want to equate the trickster with a job, but the trickster's main agenda, if if you will, is to introduce change and novelty into static systems, to to topple and overthrow 
uh, structure in a positive way in that it introduces change into a static system that allows us to progress and move forward. Well, uh, well, as well give, us an, give us an early example of that where it's a beneficial effect, if you would. Prometheus would be, I think, an example that uh, most people are aware of. Uh, of course, Prometheus was a Greek god who stole fire uh, from Zeus, from Olympus, and secretly brought it to humanity. He was told by Zeus not to do this. But he did anyway, and he was punished by Zeus for supplying fire to humanity. He was chained to a rock, I think, in the Caucasus Mountains, and Zeus sent his eagle every day to uh, pick out his liver, and then at night, the liver would heal, and then for eternity, that eagle comes back every day and picks out his liver as punishment for helping out humanity by bringing bringing fire. So this would be, uh, I think, an example of of the tragic hero type trickster loki is another one uh who was constantly at odds with with odin and and the other scandinavian uh god forms so you do have this uh, altruistic kind of sense of the trickster and i i don't really think that uh that this is a particularly a positive or negative thing i think the results of these tricksterish antics if you will have a positive effect in that they bring change and they bring um, novelty into uh, for the benefit of humanity, uh, which t- tends to topple a particular static structure, and we can move forward in our development. And I think ultimately, it's a positive. Uh, it's a positive thing. Okay. Is it nature so, coming back to us and saying, "You know what? You need to change." Is it an external force? Is it something? Internal. What is the sourcing of this trickster? Well, you know, I think the, the trickster energy is—it's um, a constellation of things. It, it tends to—it tends to manifest when it's needed, and then as people identify with that need and with the process that is undergoing, then it strengthens itself and it becomes more more concrete. And that force then becomes a constellation of other forces. So it's it's like tendrils of energy that are coalescing together as a constellation that then create change and, and introduce novelty that, that topples structure and then pulls well, us forward in our development and uh, and moves us along in our path uh, as, well, as a Chris, cluster. But Chris, I mean, so to play devil's advocate here for a moment, you know, we're referring to, you know, you're referring to Greek mythology that uh, Prometheus introduces fires to you and he steals fires from Zeus and gives it to humans. Meanwhile, the pragmatist, the scientist means says, well, at some point there was a, a proto-human that uh, figured out that there was this thing called fire and they could use it. Where do you differentiate actual events and actual occurrences and discoveries of things versus what my grandfather, for lack of a better term, may I hope rest in peace, he would have called bubamysis fairy tales. I mean, where, where, where is the delineation there? Well, I think the delineation is it, it's pretty simple, actually. Uh, the very belief uh, in a concept or in a figure or in a process has tremendous power. And because we're, we're attempting to put a face on, on an energy or force, um, as we're doing by creating myths and legends and, and, and gods and goddesses and, and fairy tales, if you were, or boobamysters. Boobamysters, boobamysters. Boobamysters. You know, the very process of doing that has tremendous power and the more people believe in something the more real it becomes so even though these are are, are are fairy tales legends and stories they have tremendous power and each culture around the world in each subculture has their own particular version 
that attempts to explain through fairy tales, myths, and legends these developments in human in human society and the human but, condition. All right, but but again, and I'm not trying to you know be a I'm not trying to be argumentative here. I'm just trying to apply some rational thought to this. Where if you have human beings who are confronted with the process of trying to survive, and in order to do this, they have to control nature, and they come up with novel methods for doing so, that very often involve a human being simply you know, being creative. You know, one could say, well, the, the spark for the inspiration for that creativity is delivered from some external source. And one could say a lot of things. But meanwhile, humans somehow are able to, you know, conquer the elements, do things that, uh, you know, at some point to a later culture seem like magic. Uh, but but where do you, you know, when, when you, you say that, you know, beliefs have tremendous powers. Yeah, they, they uh, a bunch of people who believe in something can make something happen. A bunch of people who believe that they should build a, a magnificent church at a time when there's technology that's really crude, somehow they figure out a way. And presumably, and I'm saying presumably, I'm qualifying this because I don't know the answer, but presumably by the virtue of human-based engineering, they figure out an engineering solution to create this thing, this belief makes something that's an amazing thing, and really at the end of it, what you have is uh, the incredible force of human will it sounds to me like what you're you're sort of saying is that you're finding an external source of inspiration, an external source of power for that awesome human will. So I guess that the 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 objective pragmatist in me says, at what point do you you know like again uh, ascribe a certain amount of power to belief and a certain amount of power to just the force of human will? Well, that's, you know, again, David, that's a really good question. And, and that's one of the things that I really initially uh, I felt I, I was wrestling with, um, mm -hmm. because like you, I, I do tend to look at things uh, as scientifically as possible and rationally as possible. Yet I'm, you know, in all this research that I've done, I'm, I've discovered that there seems to be some sort of force or energy that humans kind of ascribe particular qualities to that have a tendency to explain uh, developments in a culture and these developments tend to be positive I think in the long run so you know in prehistory uh, before writing it was impossible to uh, write the story of, of uh, Mog who happened to see lightning strike a tree and start a fire and he was able to uh, you know capture some of that fire and uh, carry it around one of my favorite films of all time is is the film quest for fire I think that that is a really good illustration of probably what happened back in the paleo days and in, in when cavemen were running around naked and cold trying to figure out how to, how to stay warm. So basically, I think legends and myths, you know, in the oral tradition in indigenous cultures is an attempt by the culture or subculture to explain how we got to where we're at. And I think right. there's symbols and, and there's, there's personifications of energy in these oral traditions that are a constellation uh... and in the case of, of the trickster i think that you're looking at a, at abstract properties that can manifest on several levels uh... within individual situations groups and entire culture mm -hmm. and these these prop these properties you know they're not necessarily related by cause and effect i think that the you know that it's an amalgamation of things and as more of these properties come together I mean, you have a more solidified and, and a more uh, tangible, you know, progression in, in, in the process. Now, you said a key thing, though. 
that uh, th- that we see now all the time, certainly in trying to understand the modern mythology of, for example, U- UFOs, which is that you have this component of oral tradition. And if there's one thing I can say we probably wouldn't disagree on in a strong way, it's that um, certainly look at the oral tradition surrounding the UFO enigma, right? It's like the yeah. telephone game gone crazy. Yeah. You know, you get a core story starts and there's a core truth to it. You get 60 years of people who are all adding stuff to it, who are all bringing in their own agenda items, their own motivations, their own prejudices, their own ignorances. And at a certain point, what starts as one story where there's a core of truth, there's a real core of truth to it, ends up as something that's so wildly convoluted, you know, to try to assign it even this idea of being mythology well gee it's it's so far removed from any reality and and, and like i think of roswell's probably such a great example of classic example and a great trickster event i'll tell you what you just raised something that came up on an earlier show when you mentioned this hey neighbors the old way to meet for business is over the phone or in person the new better way is to meet clients and colleagues online with GoToMeeting. GoToMeeting is like meeting in person, but less time-consuming and less expensive. Start your meeting with just a click. Everyone can see your computer desktop on their computer screen, so they can follow along as you move from page to page. You can use GoToMeeting to host a sales presentation, a product demo, or a training session. Even collaborate on documents by sharing your screens. Our listeners can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. That's a month of unlimited online meetings free. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheat. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us, but we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox. But most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com radio.namecheap.com and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code Radio Day. That's Radio Day, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Christopher O'Brien, and he's author of Stalking the Tricksters, a book that tries to put the entire trickster phenomenon into perspective. Okay, now, when we had you on a few weeks ago, you mentioned that Roswell was a classic case of trickster involvement. How so? Well, we're jumping ahead uh, quite a bit uh, here, but um, I think it started actually uh, uh, about nine years before with the War of the Worlds broadcast. I think that that was the precursor, uh, I think, to Roswell. 
And um, I do point that out in my book. I, I think Wells, tongue-in-cheek, uh, sort of innocent, sort of shrugging his shoulders, saying, well, I didn't know the whole world was going to freak out when we did this broadcast. He knew darn well what was going to happen. And he did it for a very, uh, a very specific reason, to show that you can't believe everything that you hear on the radio and today see on the TV. And I think Roswell and James Carrion brought this up, I think, uh, in his interview last, uh, last week, that, uh, that the Roswell incident has a lot of very peculiar elements uh, involved in that we've seen uh, some of the key players in promulgating the, the, the myth, you know, Bill Moore, and uh, subsequently what, what he fessed up to being a disinformation agent. And there's certain, I think, little kernels of, of tricksterism uh, in, in the historical record that we know, I mean, in terms of the key players. Out of the 300 witnesses, only five actually mention uh, anything that could be construed as being uh, otherworldly or ET-based, uh, for instance. I think Roswell, uh, my personal opinion is, is when people uh, investigate Roswell, they should look at what was going on down at White Sands just down the road and what Werner von Braun was up to. Uh, that's my personal view on it. But I think uh, Roswell is a, is a classic example of a modern myth. And if you, if you follow the progression of thinking and, and you, you follow the progression of the books and how more and more witnesses have come forward and more layers of details have been added to the initial story, I think that this is, uh, in Valet, of course, uh, I think pointed this out and others have pointed it out, that we are seeing the birth of a modern myth. And I think at, at its very core, there is a tricksterish element involved in this. And uh, I think... Basically, what it has done, it has shattered the conventional view that we are alone in this universe and that uh, there are other beings out there and that in this particular instance, we were able to bring down a craft and you have that, that tantalizing sort of gestalt uh, that the culture is making that, hey, there are aliens out there, they're coming to visit us, and then boom, you're seeing this, this meme in the culture uh, gain strength and, and gain validity in many people's minds. And, and, and I think the very core of it, though, the very basic element that's involved at the very initial event in July 1947, the trickster, I think, is involved there. And it's a force. It's not a person. It's not, you know, it's a constellation of elements that, that coalesce together and become, uh, become a very, uh, I think, important you know, form of any structure and creates novelty and change, which has happened. But here's the thing. Again, not to play devil's advocate, Chris. Well, chick chicken or the egg? Well, novelty change is a constant throughout the universe. Cha one thing we know in this universe is that nothing is really static. All systems are eroding and de-evolving. Everything is changing. So our... You know, when you say that the trickster is responsible for change, to me, it, that, that's not a very good logical argument because change is something that's happening anyway. So is the trickster part of a mechanism? Because, again, when you brought the trickster in the context of Roswell, it sounded to me there like one could probably easily substitute the term trickster for deception. I mean, yeah. It sort of sat well. <laughs> so, so... Well, but you're, you're you're throwing a lot of things into that trickster stew, and I can't figure out what the taste is. You've got change, which we know is spicy. part of the universe. <laughs> you got a point there. It's pretty spicy. Well, it, it's not that it's spicy. It's just that it's 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 almost so amorphous 
as to the point where I'd say, well, you can throw anything in there. And, it, and in that sense, it, be, it kind of becomes like religious belief in that, you know, there is no rational structure. There's no logical structure to it. There's not even deductive reasoning. In fact, I'll really go off on a limb here. There's no structure at all. It's a big brown bag. And, and it's like, okay, anything that falls outside of human deductive reasoning and objective logic, you can dump it over in this bag and call it the trickster. And it sort of sounds to me like it's the, it's the God bag. Well, we don't know why this is happening. We don't know what the point is. You can't see God's purpose. God works in mysterious ways. Put it in the God bag, and it'll do what it'll do. And God will hopefully... God willing, move us in the direction of change, maybe positive change, maybe negative change. We can't tell, really tell what the nature of the change is because who the hell knows what God's plan is. So, you know, again, I don't know that I'm yet personally clear on this idea of what the trickster is part of. Is it a natural mechanism? Is the trickster simply the part of nature that is the why that we don't understand and you're giving it that name? Because other people would give that thing other names. Other people would call that Gaia. Other people would call that, you know, God. Other people would call that the universe. In one way, it sounds like a terminology. And, and then when in the book, when you position the role of the, the, the trickster element in Native American culture, well, there it sounds like the trickster is just basically their golem. The, the, the trickster is their dibbic. It's all of the bad stuff that happens to them. It's it's their boogeyman, or am I missing something there? Yeah, you're missing something there. Again, it's amoral, it's neither positive or negative, and the results of a trickster force manifesting within a culture generally tends to have, have a positive outcome. You know, I'm kind of bummed you brought up the God thing, David. Now I can't start my trickster church. Oh boy! Trickster church. You let what? the cat out of the. Oh man! So what, you you had a nonprofit man. thing getting ready there. The tri- I, I'm I'm going to be filing my 501c. It's a church of the trickster, and I'm going to be the it, high man. Okay, we, okay. No. and I'm going to I'm going to have it. you be my my, my doorman. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll be the I'll be your antichrist. No, no, no. I'll be your antichrist. And by the way, there is already a church of tricksterism. It's called the Church of the Subgenius. We're two steps ahead of you. Sorry. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Hail Bob. Absolutely. We were there years ago. So, and that's Hail Bob, not Microsoft Bob. Okay. Yeah. No, that's Bob Bob. Dobbs Bob. Bob Dobbs Bob. Yeah. Yeah. No, but you're right, David. It it is. um, I think you can make the argument that this is just an amorphous bag that you can throw a bunch of stuff you don't understand in. You know, use a convenient term and uh, and then use it as a catch-all and as as some sort of you know blanket explanation uh, to explain the, the things that we don't understand. But but you're missing one really crucial point here. Hit me, baby. Okay, I'll hit you with a baby. I, you know, I think uh, one analogy that I've come up with, well, actually, uh, a couple of analogies that I've come up with are, are possibly will give you some insight. The trickster is actually the energetic process that uh, takes us from one state to another state, whether it's a state of belief, whether it's a state of understanding, whether it's a state of, you know, any any sort of of state that changes from one thing to another. In, in one analogy that I, that I make is a trickster is that force that switches the zero to a one in a binary system, a binary code. Um, it's the electrical 
if you will, or it's that spark that changes and transforms one thing into uh, its new state or into its uh, new development of its state. So it's, it's actually that spark that you find in a process. And if you look at it from that point of view, then it becomes less of an amorphous sort of godlike thing. And it's more of a more of a natural process. I think the trickster manifests when it needs to manifest, not when it wants to. So within a culture, if, if there is a need for any structure, if there is a need for change, the trickster then tends to coalesce together as a constellation and then manifest some sort of spark that takes us from one state to, to another state. I, I know a lot of people are going to be sitting out there scratching their heads listening to this conversation. This is really dense uh, material. And, and to be honest with you, I uh, about halfway through writing this book, I, I was getting headaches from, from thinking about this stuff. Uh-huh. I mean, it, it's not easy. It's not easy territory, uh, you know, to swim in. And it's, it's, it's an amorphous kind of blob that's very difficult. It's, it's like the, my first chapter, chapter zero, if you will, is trapping mercury. It's like breaking a thermometer and trying to corral the mercury that was inside. It's really difficult territory. That's not to say that it's impossible, but um, you really have to you you really have to focus on I think cultural processes, how change manifests within culture, why it manifests within culture, what happens once it manifests, especially what happens to the status quo, to the ruling part of, of a structure and culture. And the trickster is, is what is constantly keeping us moving forward. It's not a god. It's not a goddess. It's older than that. It's more primal than that. It has it, it, it's it's a process. It's an energy. It's a spark. So I, I understand what you're saying, but you see, the thing is, again, I have my own personal reasons for perhaps even believing some of what you're putting forward based on experiences I've had, some of which I've alluded to on the Paracast. So I'm not discounting this, but but the problem here is that from a logical point of view, just from logic, just from logic 101. You know, when you're describing this this thing, this this trickster energy, first of all, I'm at a point now having a grasp of physics that when I hear the term energy thrown around, I have to say it gets me a little nervous. You know, when people say energy, I say, well, okay, what unit of measurement of energy are we talking about? What manifestation of energy are we talking about? What wavelength of energy are we, you know, energy? Energy is a process of transformation. Something's getting transformed to something else. It doesn't just show up in a vacuum and then disappear in a vacuum. At least not, not our understanding of it. That's not to say it's not possible, but our... Right, it can't be either created or destroyed, only changed in its form. Right. So with all of this, you know, when you talk about things that move things forward and this idea of novelty, again, I mean, you look at the history of technology. Things don't happen in a vacuum. You know, we look at the timeline of the development of technologies. It's like you're talking about the spark in the circuit. Well, that electrical spark doesn't just show up there randomly, okay? A circuit is a very closely designed thing, very carefully designed thing that sends uh, currents to certain gates, to certain memory positions, to certain components in an integrated circuit when they are needed. They are sequenced. They are timed. There is a master timing bus that lines up these events in time so that they, they happen in a sequence where... There is a process that is being built towards, and that process is playing out in really a very linear fashion. I mean, in a computer, 
very little happens randomly. Most of it is happening along a very carefully tracked plan. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. I have that, a track plan, by the way, a very carefully tracked plan to tell everybody that we have Christopher O'Brien, the author of Stalking the Tricksters, and now we're looking into things that work by plan. But I wanted to interrupt you for another reason, David. We right. raise the possibility that things work according to a plan. So is there a planet foot in our understanding of UFOs and paranormal phenomena in general? Well, you know, again, I think that this is a layered process. I think that we're seeing something that has been operating for millennia. It's layering, slowly layering into various uh, cultures and subcultures on the planet. You know, I don't see this. Uh, individual uh, ufological events, I don't think, are what's important. I think it's the overall effect. Uh, Valet brought up a, a good analogy uh, of the cultural thermostat. Mm-hmm. That uh, when things heat up, it tends to um, cool things down, and when things uh, tend to get cold, it heats up. I think that you can equate, if you take uh, his thermostat analogy, you could uh, equate maybe warm with uh, negative and cold with positive, or or vice versa. And you can also even overlay a tricksterish, uh, tricksterish quality to that thermostatic process, if you will. So. You know, again, I think UFOs are, are the most recent uh, manifestation, uh, possibly, of, of trickster uh, force, uh, if energy kind of makes you uncomfortable. So it's, it's very difficult, I think, to, to really look at a particular phenomenon like, like, like UFOs and really glean anything from individual events. I think it's the, it's the overall effect of interaction with uh, these things we see in the sky, and, and we've been seeing them for probably thousands of years. Uh, so this this is, I think, an ongoing thing. I think as we progress as a culture, I think as we progress as um, as aware, rational, scientifically based beings, that that the manifestation uh, becomes more technological. And this is all you know, almost UFO uh, ufology 101 stuff here. But if you equate the underlying spark or underlying uh, causality to some sort of tricksterish type type uh, manifestation then at least in my mind it becomes clearer and if you if you look at the commonalities between all your trickster forms uh, as they exist uh, in the oral traditions and and myths and legends and uh, uh, what was that word Bo- bush 
Bubamysis <laughs> around the world, uh, you'll notice that there's one thing, and this is this is when I had a major, uh, I think, breakthrough in my thinking uh, in researching this book. I tried to look for a correlation, something that, that is consistent throughout a majority, if not all, of your trickster forms, and that is shape-shifting. That is what really, I think, uh, gave me my one of my major breakthroughs in, in researching this material, the, the very fact that that trickster forms are able to shape-shift in, in one manner or another is, I think, very important. And that's why I was able to then open up the definition, I think, of, of tricksters into the realm of elementals, of blood-based uh, vampiric-type legends, of werewolves, and, um, and other types of forms that are you know, one of the commonalities is that, that quality of shape-shifting. So, again, you know, David, you bring up really good points. I, I don't think that my my theory is is totally fleshed out. I don't think that I, I, I there's tons of gaping holes in it. Um, my whole inspiration or motivation to even uh, attempt to tackle this this uh, material is because I'm sick and tired of of people of being locked with blinders on. You know, like right. like you mentioned at the onset. You know, but you go out to investigate a, a UFO sighting, and you find out Bigfoot, you know, appeared down the road, or or, or perhaps there were there was strange weather phenomena that that, that were occurring at the time, or, or aberrant social uh, events were taking place. I have always sensed an underlying interconnectedness between these very divergent things, and my attempt here uh, with this trickster material is to come up with a underlying interconnectedness or some sort of, of structure that could possibly be tying these various divergent things together. And I don't think enough creative thinking is, is taking place in the field. I think we're very stagnant right now. I don't, I don't see any real progression in our in our creative thinking there's not enough out of the box thinking going on i, I was so saddened when mac tone's passed uh, i think mac was oh, yeah. was 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 a had tremendous potential was a very brilliant very bright guy and um you know i've always been a john keel jacques valet uh, aficionado and what i am attempting to do is is try to take the ball that they brought down the field and try to take it maybe another few yards down the field and the only way to really do that, I think, is to start at the basic, fundamental, at, at the very beginning uh, of this whole uh, reality-based uh, line of thinking. And, and the trickster form, I think, is is the only one that I've been able to look at and, and really scratch my head and think about that, that even remotely can make sense. And and again, I I, I do understand that the, you know that you know there's a lot of holes in my theory. I'll be the first to admit that. But hey, it's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. Bring that ball down the field a little bit. Well, you know, we'll start trying. We're trying to hone down. You know, like what the theory is. I mean, in the book, you you jump around between a number of different things. Like you start you, and like you go into a very interesting historical perspective, for example, on the origins of vampiric uh, activity. You know, which the vampire thing is really fascinating. In that our culture for some reason can never get enough of it it's always somehow compelling and right now we're going in the middle of right now in the middle of yet another huge renaissance of interest in this and i i mean i'm not an anthropologist i mean i don't understand necessarily why but you do of course point out in the book that blood sacrifice and the blood ritual has always been there it's funny because recently i was uh, also just happened to throw on the that movie The Devil's Advocate with Keanu Reeves and uh, and Al Pacino, where Pacino's like the devil and he's this lawyer and he's trying to Keanu Reeves is his son and he's the Antichrist, blah blah blah. 
But but in that movie, there's this whole thing about how uh, blood ritual is something that is is it always seems to be underneath of almost every aspect of our culture, whether you know whether it's on the fringes of our culture like Santeria and voodoo, or whether it's um, institutionalized and it's it's kind of sanitized. Like the whole thing they do in church of you know drinking the dead Jewish carpenter guy's blood, which you know ha- has kind of a very creepy yeah. set of, of connotations to it. I mean, and and, so and people, slaughtering a million Iraqis, you know. I mean, that's a ritual blood sacrifice. And I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't disagree with that at all, sir. At it's all. a point well taken. I think that this is a blind spot in Western culture. Um, I think you you bring up Santeria and Condomble and and other blood based uh, ritual forms of uh, belief, you know, the transmogrification of blood in, into wine. And, and, you know, you find this underlying theme uh, all around the world. Uh, but it's something that most people don't really want to think about. They don't really want to go there. And one thing that I can, I think, say with some, some confidence is that blood is a powerful magical elixir. And uh, I know in a rational scientific conversation, I, I would just be laughed at and scoffed at. But I think if you look at blood as a ritual substance, as it's as it's been utilized down through the ages, you'll find that it's very powerful, and it's uh, it's something that most people don't want to you know they don't even want to uh, to go there. They don't want to think about it. And, and yeah. but what's the paranormal foundation of that? I mean, yeah, blood is very mystical, sure, because it's the thing that's inside of all of us that keeps us going. That we at a kind of at a subconscious level. We all know it. You know, there's the idea your heart starts stops pumping that blood and it's over. So, you know, yeah, it, it of course it has that mystical role in our lives. It's, you know, cut through. It's, it's what's under the very surface of yourself. But how do you take that? I guess my question is, how do you take that reality, that physiological, biological reality that is absolutely uh, in your face? How do you then transpose that into having any kind of of a mystical meaning. I guess that's the part of the mechanism that I'm not clear about, personally. And I'm personally not clear about it either, uh, to be honest with you. I, I just I recognize the cultural significance, I think, in, in terms of uh, belief systems that have arisen around uh, the very concept of blood as, as some form of powerful elixir. Um, one of the things that I've, I've found myself uh, on, you know, being the odd man out in the catamulation phenomenon, for instance, I've, I've done quite a bit of field work and research and investigation into that particular mystery. And one of the things that I am absolutely pretty much convinced of is at the core of the catamulation phenomenon, as an example, you have some element of ritual blood sacrifice going on. And I do tie this modern sort of manifestation of a mystery into the, you know, the ancient uh, human uh, practice of, of animal sacrifice. I mean, look at the, the rise of the Judeo-Christian tradition. It all comes from Abraham. And what's the most famous story of Abraham? Of him being asked by the Creator to sacrifice his only son on an altar. You know, it's it's. I think if you look at it from a logical, rational, scientific point of view, you're not going to be able to answer that question. You, there's got to be some sort of disconnect there. And that disconnect ties us into 
an ancient belief that blood is somehow a crucial, important magical elixir. Uh, and, you know, again, this is all, <laughs> this is all, you know, it sounds great on paper and all that. And like I said, there's tons of holes in my theory, but I, I, I do have a sense that I'm on to something here by blasting open the definition of the trickster, by looking at the correlation of shape-shifting as a interconnectedness between potential trickster forms, then you start to get possibly on the right track, at least uh, in my line of thinking here. Now, this is something where maybe we want to start exploring the meaning behind each element of the subtitle. And we went into shapeshifters, and we're wrapping up with part one. We have a whole hour of part two to get into the various efforts to stalk the tricksters. So shapeshifters, something that looks like one thing and then becomes something else, and that's almost like the werewolf. If we're getting into the vampire lore, of course, werewolves always surrounded vampires. So shapeshifters, people turning into dogs, cats, werewolves, what? Exactly. All down through history in most cultures on the planet, you have forms that are legendary, that are that have been uh, mythologized, if you will, that feature that ability to change from, let's say, a human form into an animal form, uh, which would be, you know, for instance, the skinwalker tradition in the Diné, Navajo and Apache belief system of, of these dark adepts that are able to shapeshift into various animal forms. You have this this quality in South America and Africa. Um, this is something that is worldwide in terms of the mythological and legendary uh, realm. Obviously, if you put your logical, scientific, rational hat on, this stuff is all like, oh, yeah, right, uh-huh, sure. Yes, uh, a human can, can sh you know, shapeshift into an animal form. On the surface, it doesn't make any sense. But then why do we have such a consistent, albeit varying view of this, but we do have uh, what appears, at least to me, to be a, a consistent sort of belief that has existed within humanity that does ascribe this ability to certain powerful adepts. Uh, hence the subtitle of the book. I would rather have not used a subtitle for this book because it does kind of pigeonhole the subject matter in the in the eye of the casual Barnes and Noble browser. But I do feel that the Skinwalker, the belief in the Skinwalker uh, tradition, I think it's 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 indicative of a tricksterish type manifestation. And I think that the the Sherman Ranch case uh, that David mentioned uh, earlier um, is a classic example of tricksterism. Uh, uh, manifesting in the realm of, of you know, the science, scientific uh, paradigm. It's some of the events that happened on that ranch just totally baffled, you know, Colm Kelleher and, and Jacques Vallée and Eric Davis and the guys that were involved in monitoring that space up there. You know, I think that that, that particular case, I think, is a pivotal key case in, uh, in the annals of paranormal investigation. Because not only do you have a crack world-class scientific team that's examining what appears to be a very paranormal hotspot, but you have manifestation of tricksterish energy that's like trying to trap mercury. They were never able to really come, you know, at least to our, to our knowledge publicly, they have never admitted that they were able to, to make any headway with trying to determine the causality behind these events. So, you know, again, uh, you know, the shape-shifting element, I think, is something that is, is, is correlated through this whole subject, and I do feel that that by coming up with that breakthrough, at least in my own personal thinking on it, it did open up the door for me to then to really riff with it and go with it. You know what? We'll open more doors and try to find the tricksters, get a handle on them, see if we can ever get more 
than just stalking involved, and maybe we can get one. In our own room, we sit here and we'll talk to a trickster. Instead, we have David instead of talking to regular <laughs> tricksters. <laughs> what are you talking about? We have more of whatever this is, ladies and gentlemen. Pipe down, sir. Okay. Thank you. We'll have more of whatever this is in part two on the other side of the Paracast. Are you really hearing me? Is this a random collection of pixels and bits made to sound like a tricksterish form? What is this? What is the difference between perception and reality? Oh, look, it's a hit of DMT. Now I will really change the meaning of the discussion. So, Frank, what do you think about UFOs? I saw one once. I think they're out there. You know, what, what they are, I don't know. Well, I believe that something is out there. I think that those things that you see in the sky are only one small manifestation of a whole wide range of phenomena that people haven't properly named or have attributed the wrong source to. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Our trickster left for the day, and Did so he? we brought back, instead of having that trickster, we have the David Bietney trickster. Mm, I'm not feeling too trickster-esque right now, but okay. All right, we'll go for that. Seriously, right. we have Christopher O'Brien, author of Stalking the Tricksters, Shapeshifters, Skinwalkers, Dark Adepts in 2012. We got into Shapeshifters, we are covering Skinwalkers, and when we're looking at definitions, we have a Shapeshifter and we have the Skinwalker how do we clearly define them? Well, there's no real, I think, way to define both with one quick, easy um, definition. Oh, I can. Ooh, 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 I can. I can. Okay. Shapeshifters are a subset of skinwalkers. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Well, actually, skinwalkers are a subset of shapeshifters. Uh, again, Stop. You're both right. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, it works both ways. A, a great yeah. truth is one whose opposite is also uh, true. So I guess we're, we're on the right track there. <laughs> Skinwalkers is, is just a, a catch-all term, I think, that, um, that denotes a particular talented Diné sorcerer or you know, black magician, if you will. And uh, there is a belief on the reservation. I, I, I'm up on the Navajo reservation uh, regularly and, uh, and also make trips up to Hopi and to Zuni and in other places as well here in the Southwest. And, and I'll tell you, the people there, they take this stuff uh, a lot more seriously than you would think in, this, you know, in the 21st century. It's very difficult uh, to do any sort of research on the res when it comes to witchcraft and especially uh, the darkest of the uh, black magicians, which would be the uh, shapeshifter uh, called a skinwalker. And a lot of people, you just even mention the word Yisha Dolshi, which is the Navajo way to say it um and and they they literally turn on their heel and they'll walk the other way very very few uh navajo or uh, Diné people that i've been able to really enter into a meaningful conversation about the topic and uh it is there's a belief system around uh, skinwalkers as i point out in the book that uh it's very it's a very difficult nut to crack in terms of being a researcher and uh i have talked to law enforcement officials that have responded to skinwalker claims uh reports and encounters and and there's just a a palpable sense of fear that's evoked by just mentioning the very term 
So, I, again, this harkens back to what I was saying earlier in, about the power of belief. The very fact that people on the res and thousands of people have a belief system around the reality of these dark adepts, if you will, um, I think is very powerful. And, and, and it has, um, it has a, a real uh, impact on the, on the, the individuals who, who have this belief. So, you know, again, you're going to find similar types of, of uh, traditions and beliefs all around the world. I mean, there's been news stories of, uh, you know, people that have been uh, seen in Africa uh, that are able to sh- shapeshift into various animal forms. Uh, there was one news story that came out just before my book was published about some guys that, uh, you know, had, were leading this goat and the goat was uh, escaped and somebody shot it. And then the thing turned into a human when it died. And, and you know, obviously you have to take these types of so-called news reports with a grain of salt. But the very fact that there's a belief system around this uh, potential ability, I think is very powerful. And shape-shifting is, again, to kind of uh, reiterate, shape-shifting is a correlated quality that I find is consistent uh, through most, if not all, um, trickster forms. Now, this is one of these things where, you know, I, I don't want to seem like I'm coming down on, on you hard, Chris, because uh, people who have listened very astutely to the show know that one of my very uncomfortable paranormal things I don't talk about is that, and, and I don't pretend to understand this, so I'll just, you know, say the sentence uh, with some degree of hesitation, but in my life I have had direct one-on-one interactions with what appeared to be some sort of a shape-shifting entity. And uh, uh, and this was a, a series of contacts that happened over a couple of years. And and I, I don't even like talking about it. I, I, it's not something that... You know, it's one of those things that... You know, it's, I'll bring it up on the show, and there's that element of people listening to the show who would love to see me get you know brought down, who will very quickly jump and say, he's got no proof he's, he's mentioning this, Oh my God! How can he say this? You know, he has no proof, and that's right. I I have no physical proof of it. I have the uh, a very sickening feeling that's quickly gathering in my stomach right now as I even remember interacting with whatever this was. There's some very weird, weird, weird things associated with this, and it was it was a female, and uh, uh, through a period of a couple of years, uh, I, I interacted with with this thing more than a few times and each time uh, it was the same I knew it was the same being except she looked sounded completely different and I don't mean like makeup I mean like it was a different person except it was the same person except it wasn't and I have no explanation for this Um, it was I can tell you this the nature of the interactions was uh, not positive the nature of the memories of the interactions, what I would categorize as unpleasant. I'm only bringing it up now to acknowledge that I have some belief in this based on my own experiences. I, I don't have any understanding of it. I wish I had never interacted with this thing because, like I said, it, uh, even talking about it now, I'm, and my stomach's hurting me a little bit. But what I will say is this, and I'll sort of, you know, put this in the context of what you write about in terms of the skinwalker with with regards to Native Americans' interactions with these beings. These interactions, my interactions with whatever this was and what appear to be the, the, the vast majority of interactions of Native Americans with these beings 
is one of negativity. If you're a Native American, based on what I read in your book, Chris, you don't want to meet one of these things out in the night. Oh, no. You don't want to interact with them. Based on what, what, what I can say, whatever this thing was I interacted with, I don't know what it she it was. I do not know. I do not know why it interacted with me. Um, but no part of it was positive. No part of it was pleasant. And so, again... It makes me think, well, are these trickster elements? Because they certainly didn't engender any kind of positive change in me. They didn't move me towards any kind of enlightenment. Uh, it just creeped the hell out of me. And it sounds like with like you know these Indian interactions you're talking about, if these skinwalkers are tricksters, it doesn't sound like they're doing anything positive. Well, that's a point well taken. Uh, remember we said uh, I mentioned that there are three classifications at least in my you know expanded definition of, of uh, trickster that there are three classifications we've only covered the first two the first one of course is the most ancient primordial anthropomorphized animal changing Gaia or nature for the better, betterment of humanity the second type is a tragic hero who actually supplies humanity with technology the third type is the shamanic trickster form which is a like a bridge, a liminal link between the primordial trickster forms and the modern trickster form. Now, I'll digress just a little bit here. Prior to the establishment of, uh, you know, the urban centers and a pantheistic system of gods and goddesses, your personal link to the divine or to creator was generally through some shamanic entity in your subculture. The shaman tradition, as it exists even today, is uh, is basically a doorway uh, and a a system of belief and and a system of knowledge that allows you a direct access with uh, the d- divine or your connection with with creator. Now, of course, with the rise of the urban uh, centers and a pantheistic system of gods and goddesses, you had the rise of the priest class, which supplanted. And and pretty much shunted aside the shamanic traditions, mm-hmm. and yeah. you have a priest class which becomes a doorway to the divine, uh, a colonizer of spirit that allows you uh, connection with Creator that that says you're worthy enough to be uh, to be connected with some sort of d- divine energy or force. I think that as the shaman system was shunted aside in urban cultures. Again, the trickster became marginalized. Now, today, if you go to Native American um, cultures, uh, for instance, you'll find that one of the uh, the most important medicine societies on Indian reservations is the trickster or clown society. Now, tricksters and clowns, there's a very important connection there. This is where I think modern people have their closest relationship with trickster, I think, is, is with clowns. And <laughs> clowns can be kind of freaky to some people, and I think there's even a, you know, a particular phobia that, uh, <laughs> I forget what it's called, but, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. clowns. Clowns, I think, uh, are the most prevalent form of tricksters uh, uh, out there right now. And what we're looking at is a human trickster form that instead of being symbiotic like the 
anthropomorphized animal or the tragic hero instead of having that that symbiotic quality where it's 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 something that is generally positive you have a more of a parasitic sense about you bernie madoff would be a classic example of a human trickster i mean the guy was able to freaking get 60 billion dollars out of people yeah but but wait a minute so see okay isn't that just an example of a really slick thief i mean you know exactly exactly but Yuri Geller, uh, uh, Daniel Dunglass Home, Houdini, uh, you know, well, all now, sorts now, of hold on. sisters. Now, now, all right, now hold on, hold on, stop. Because now, now we're definitely jumping all over the, the map. And there was a little bit of discourse about this on the forums where, where I, I put down a message in there saying very, very simply that, you know, there are people who definitely exhibit some anomalous abilities. It's one of the reasons we do the Paracast. I'll concede to the possibility that early on in Yuri Geller's life that he may have manifested some unusual abilities. I'll 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 acquiesce to that. But you know, you you had on one of these threads, you had you know positioned Yuri Geller as this you know potential uh, human focus point or portal of some sort. And you know, I got to say, I'm with Skyler on that one. At, at this point. Regardless of if, again, it might well, have been you, that. If you that, read it carefully, I did. I, yeah. I, I excuse me, let, excuse me, guys. You know, not everybody reads the Powercast forums, and maybe well, we should right. kind of explain what we're talking about here. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheap. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us. But we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox. But most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code RADIODAY, that's RADIODAY, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. This is James Carrion, International Director of the Mutual UFO Network. You are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. I would say we have Christopher O'Brien. He is the author of Stalking the Tricksters, Shapeshifters, Skinwalkers, Dark Adepts in 2012. And maybe we don't want to get into 2012, or maybe we do, I don't know. But David, you were focusing on a thread in our oh. forums, featuring Skyler, one of our regular and very productive and very knowledgeable members, maybe you can tell us what this is all about. Well, no, it's just the, it's just the whole idea of that at a certain point, and certainly, you know, we try to do this on the Paracast, where you admit that there are people, there are enigmatic characters, and and we want to. Uh, there's one of them I want to talk with you at length, Chris. And I told you before we did the the show that you know one of the people I really want to focus on. Is this whom guy? Well, and we'll get back to him in a little bit because it looks like there's something there that is potentially truly anomalous. But in the case of like a Geller, right? I, I think uh, personally, like I said, I'm willing to accept the idea that at some point early on, Geller might have had some anomalous abilities. 
I think that with the subsequent amount of information that's come out about him, it becomes painfully clear that certainly in any kind of recent time, there is absolutely nothing that is believable about Geller in terms of leading me to be convinced that he has any sort of paranormal abilities. Chris Angel, someone who on camera does amazing stuff. I am absolutely fascinated. I'm, I'm bowled over by his visual illusions. But the guy is the first to admit that he has no paranormal abilities, that what he's doing are very carefully crafted illusions. They're sleight of hand tricks. So, yeah, yeah you know. and, and I agree. And, and one of the things that I pointed out in my in the beginning of the thread was that there are certain people that exhibit unnatural abilities. Bernie Madoff, I think, has had an unnatural ability to milk people out of billions of dollars. That doesn't make him paranormal. I, I you know, I wasn't suggesting that uh, Houdini and the Fox sisters and and John Smith, who started the Mormon religion, I wasn't suggesting these people were paranormal. What I was suggesting is that they had unnatural abilities that the rest of us don't have. Or more people would be able to start huge worldwide religions or well, float, float up in the air. Well, or, or maybe it's the desire to do so. I mean, you know, Madoff decided that he was going to play a game. He was going to build people. And Madoff actually did what the greatest shysters of all time have done, is that he built an aura of mystery around him. And my favorite part, he wore expensive clothes. He dressed well. <laughs> Basically, this was, and this is, look, how many times... Have we seen this in our society? Every frickin' politician up there with the coiffed hair and the really finely tailored suits, human beings have been indoctrinated into the idea that if someone is well-dressed, that somehow they're more believable. Which, you know, hey, the Nazis, were their uniforms were masterpieces of fashion design. They really would yeah. have had the best-looking uniforms ever, okay? Yeah, we're, we're, you're, you're absolutely arguing my point. My point being that there is a class of trickster that is not your primordial energy form. What they but have can't done. we call them shysters? Do we have to call them tricksters? See, terminology well, has how, meaning to me. How, how about Adzom Rinpoche or some of the, the, the Rinpoches that, that just defy description in some of the abilities that they have? They're not shysters. They don't attempt to make money off of their abilities, or their apparent abilities, I think, to be more accurate. Well, again, we've got Bernie Madoff, who's a guy who has always been and will always be nothing but a thief and a scumbag. Right. Okay, he's off on one side. Then we have guys like Jose de Freitas Arrigo. Now, yeah, exactly. Right? So, so you know, who never dressed well, didn't do any of that stuff, who had very interesting abilities that, if you want to make the case that there was a guy who had some sort of trickster power working through him, I'll buy that. That That's one where I'll say, okay, to me, you can make a very interesting argument that that's indeed what's happened. And then in your book, uh, you bring up a, a case that I'm admittedly not familiar with. I told you about this when we talked on the phone, and, and I'd like to spend a little while talking about it because it's one of these things where it was one of these cases where I started reading in your book about this, and I thought, I've never heard of this guy this guy sounds like the real deal. Now, uh, Skyler, if you're hearing this now and, and you know otherwise, I'm sure I'll be hearing from you after this airs, but tell us about Daniel Hume. Well, Daniel Hume is a very enigmatic uh, figure who was born in uh, the 1830s in, in Scotland from a very early age, uh, apparently had some 
some fairly interesting abilities. He he was one of a, a number of personages during the, the, the great spiritualist movement, if you will, in the 1870s and 80s, who appeared to be able to manifest um, objects. Uh, he was uh, whom in, in one very famous uh, attended session was able to levitate out a window and uh, I think a couple of floors up and go around the wall and come back in through another window. He was able to manifest um, instruments and play them remotely. Um, he was actually uh, William Crooks, who was a famous scientist at the time. I, he, I think it was a discoverer of, of some element, thallium, if I remember correctly, um, uh, did an extensive examination and investigation of Hume and his abilities and signed off on him saying that he could not, uh, he could not ascertain you know, any sort of trickery involved. There have been some, uh, James Randi, for instance, uh, has come up with some potential explanations to uh, explain how Hume was able to do certain things. One thing is, I think, pretty clear, though, that the, he was very enigmatic. He did seem to, uh, uh, if he was a trickster and a Chris Angel type, uh, he was able to hide uh, any sort of evidence of trickery. Uh, he never accepted uh, money for uh, readings that he did or seances that he conducted or any of the demonstrations of his abil apparent abilities, which I think, and, and David, I'm sure you'll agree with this. I've heard you agree before about this. Yeah. That this, this, this is, uh, I think, indicative of something that could be, could be, you know, uh, I think some sort of proof, at least in my mind, of of someone that doesn't have an ulterior uh, motive. Uh, Arigo is another one who didn't accept money. Yeah. So, you know, Hume, again, uh, it's, it's very difficult in hindsight, obviously, to, to look at a man and, and look at his apparent abilities in his life and, 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 and cast judgment on the veracity of his, of his abilities or, or, you know, the, the extent of his abilities. But when you have someone like, uh, like Crook, who did uh, spend uh, quite a bit of time uh, with Hume, and um, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, I mean, Hume did uh, demonstrations for some of the the glitterati and the royals of uh, of Europe uh, in the 1860s and 70s. And there is some indication that there there probably was some special abilities there. But but again, he's just one of uh, a number of people I think over the years that uh, have exhibited what appears to the casual onlooker to be special abilities. Like Sai Baba is a, was able supposedly to manifest. Um, objects uh, to pull mana from from the air. Uh, Adzam Rinpoche, who's um, who's very enigmatic, is a Tibetan Buddhist uh, monk who uh, is able to leave footprints in stone. Um, is able to manifest, uh, you know, mana out of the air. And, and this is on videotape. There's, there's really, oh yeah. Yeah, he um, he's he's quite a quite an interesting character. There are some adepts, I think, in the East um, over the years that have, have purported to have these types of abilities. Now, in the thread that we we were talking about earlier, I was just suggesting that there are uh, individuals out there and have been throughout history that that seem to have some sort of special destiny, that have an ability to make reality conform to their will. Uh, and I used loosely the term walking portal, which is probably a mistake on my part. I've been <laughs> responding to, <laughs> to, to, to jibes and, and, and being dogged for that particular uh, moment of weakness on my part. But uh, 
Uh, you know, again, I think that there are humans that seem to exhibit what could be likened to some sort of tricksterish ability. I think the tools, the manner and method of, of tricksterism can be used by humans in a parasitic way, self-serving way, or in a altruistic sort of symbiotic way. I, I, I do feel that there are shamanic systems uh, on the planet that have uh, certain uh, adept knowledge that uh, is utilized oftentimes uh, to make a point in the subculture to to impress upon um, the people that that this person does have some special abilities. Terence McKenna brought up some very very interesting points about the use of mind altering substances by by um, indigenous cultures that could possibly be some sort of, of triggering device. Uh, let's say DMT, psilocybin mushrooms, could trigger latent abilities in, in humans. Now, see, I have to just stop you there because this is a topic I've gotten into a lot of private discussions with, with, uh, about with people on the forums. I've gotten a lot of emails about this. I don't know if Gene has as well. Uh, we've received a tremendous amount of email from people saying, when are we going to do a DMT episode? Uh, there have been other shows in this space where people who have never had any kind of hallucinogenic drug experience will go out, score some psilocybin mushroom, and then without telling anybody, without any proper preparation, go, go and drop shrooms and then come back with their absolutely ridiculous, childish impressions and then essentially try to establish some kind of a tenuous connection between visual hallucinations and objective reality. Now, I think that is incredibly irresponsible, and I just want to go on the record and say that. And I'm someone who, in my lifetime, has actually had exposure to a number of these compounds. Not recently. Um, it's been a, quite a while since I did any hallucinogens, but I did go through a period when I was younger where I thought this would be an interesting thing to try. And I did try a number of things. I never did DMT, but I tried just about every other type of, at the time in the in the you know, mid-70s, late-70s, early-80s. That explains um, it, Gene. Well, no, no, no. Well, just, the, well, just the, the point being that I did these things in controlled environments with some education about what I was doing before I did it, always with a guide figure, someone who had had experience with the, with the, with the, the substance or the compound in order to provide guidance. And what I came away with from those experiences was the understanding that our perception of reality is highly malleable. That's what I learned. I did not come to believe that the things that I had seen or visualized under, for example, the effects of mescaline or LSD, I didn't come to think that that was somehow an objective reality, which I think a lot of these researchers looking into these very, uh, uh, very complex compounds, and McKenna's one that, and I know I get into trouble with, with this because I say about Terrence McKenna's work, all right. He has some interesting thoughts about this stuff, but to then try to create a framework by where people like McKenna will say this altered reality is every bit a real reality as the reality that surrounds you when you're not under the influence of this highly powerful, highly potent form of hallucinogenic material. To, to sort of equate those things, I think, is a logical fallacy. I don't think it makes any sense logically. 
And also, it, it displays, I believe, a pretty high degree of ignorance about how the human perception system works and about how the brain works. You know, it's kind of like looking at a movie and saying that's a reality. And it's like, well, it's a reality in the framework of a two-dimensional collection of pixels that are just telling a story. But a movie is no more reality than a hallucinogenic vision is a reality. I'm sorry. I just have to say that for the record because, okay. I, you know, and, I think it's and A point well taken. And, and I think for the most part, I absolutely agree with you. I do also want uh, to mention the caveat that we only perceive a very thin sliver of what could be um, scientifically called reality. First Absolutely of all. correct. I, I, no debate on that. I mean, right. uh, our perception, our, our sensory input devices are limited to a tiny little sliver of the electromagnetic spectrum. I've said that on the show many, many times. You know, there's stuff going on in the infrared realm around us. We don't see. There's stuff going on on many different realms around us that we don't see because our, our, our eyesight, our smell, even our instrumentation right, doesn't allow us to peer. How about if I give you an example of, of something and, and get your comments on this? Sure. Um, like you, I went through um, a phase of uh, psychedelic experimentation uh, many years ago. Actually, uh, it was quite extensive, uh, <laughs> uh, shall we say. Um, I had one experience that I have yet to reconcile, and, and yet I'd still, I still scratch my head when I think about it. All right. We were out in the woods. Uh, it was extremely dark. It was a moonless night with clouds. Uh, we were in an abandoned uh, old mining camp with a, an abandoned mine, uh, log, miner's log cabin. There was a group of us inside in the dark, pitch black, and there was another group outside by a campfire. I did an experiment. I wrote with a lit cigarette in the air. In script, can you read this? And everybody sitting there, the three or four people that were sitting there with me, you know, they could read what I what I had written there because for some reason the the compound seemed to allow the light as it was being written into words to hang in the air. Yeah, their after okay. images were enhanced. Exactly. Okay. Well, how do you explain this? Two people who were outside that were not there when I wrote in the air about 10 seconds later came in, stopped in their tracks and said, yes, I can read it. How do you explain that? I don't know. There you go. So there's an example of what I would call some sort of perceptual uh, heightening of awareness that is not explained with conventional, you know, mechanistic, uh, mechanistic uh, view of human perception. It does not conform. And then we tried it on other people, and they were able to read it too, people that were not anywhere near or in within eyesight of me writing with a lit cigarette in the pitch black. People were able to come in from the outside and read the words. And I did a, a, an ad hoc controlled experiment at the time. And this, uh, to, to this day, I still can't figure out how, you know, what sort of mechanistic process allowed that to, to take place. But you're not sure about the passage of time between when you actually wrote it and when they came in? Sure I am. But you were uh, under the, the, you were under the influence. Uh, the passage of time was, uh, in the first instance, was about 20 to 30 seconds. We okay. did it, and people were able to read it almost to a minute later. Uh, after about a minute, uh, it, it, for some reason, it didn't work. But up, in t up until that point, uh, people were able to come in and read the words that were written there.
You hear it on TV. You hear it on radio. Cash for gold. Yes, it's an enticing phrase during these challenging days. But the real question is, how much cash are you going to get for your gold and silver? Are you going to get the best value? Well, you can get the best price from a company whose owners have decades of experience in the business. Welcome to Goldbug. The folks at Goldbug warn you that many of those high-budget gold buyers are paying far less than you deserve for your gold and silver. Goldbug will give you top dollar each and every time. To learn more, call 1-866-596-6134. That number again, 1-866-596-6134 for Goldbug. Or visit us online at goldbug.com. That's Goldbug with two G's. Goldbug.com. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have Christopher O'Brien. This is not an anti-smoking commercial or a pro-smoking commercial. That is our disclaimer. Yeah, don't try this at home. Definitely not. Definitely not. This is done under controlled circumstances with physicians nearby. And, you know, we don't want to tell you how many years he spent recovering from this ailment. Seriously, we don't have a lot of time to stalk those tricksters. But you have a couple of other topics in this subtitle of the book. One is a dark adept. So what's a dark adept? Well, we've, we've kind of been talking about dark adepts. Um, you know, I, I use the, the term dark, I think, loosely. Uh, we've, we've been talking about adepts, I think, uh, in general. Skinwalkers would be an example of a dark adept. Uh, a Vudan priest would be a dark adept. Uh, there are certain types of, of shamanic traditions that, that can go either positive or negative. Um, anytime you have an individual like let's say uh, uh hitler or uh someone that's able to to mesmerize mass groups of people or even small groups of people to do things that they normally would not do that to me is exhibiting uh, the abilities of a dark adept um sarah palin there you go yeah dick cheney um, beck bill o'reilly <laughs> sean hannity well, are those tricksters or are those just people tapping into the collective ignorance of the American population? I mean, or where do you population. draw the line? Um, a dark adept to me is someone that utilizes uh, uh, knowledge that most of us don't have for nefarious parasitic purposes. This, in my expanded definition, is a form of tricksterism. It is not pure tricksterism in terms of a an amoral sort of... Uh, neither positive or negative force that's done in a symbiotic or manifested in a symbiotic uh, formula or way. But these are people that are using manners and methods and, and, and methodology and tools of tricksterism to, to get over, basically, and to, to become a parasitic force in the culture. So we're talking about every, banks, every banker? Yeah, yeah. You're talking well, about every day trader, every well, stockbroker, every well, it's where financial you want, writer. I mean, seriously, it's in the eye of the beholder. If you're some uh, Maori uh, Indian on a small island off New Zealand and you don't have uh, you don't have exposure to these things, they could be construed that way. Sure, it's okay. it's everything is relative, and we have to look at 
the manifestation of the trickster force or, or you know, I, now I hesitate to use the word energy. But you, you have to look at it, uh, you know, everything is relative when it comes to this. And it's, I think it's ultimately, it's the, it's the end result. It's that shattering of structure. It's the, it's the, the manifestation in the culture of some sort of change that pulls us forward in our development. And I keep going back to that because that, I think, is really what the trickster force or, or the, the, the whole idea of the trickster uh, as, it, as it manifests in, in our reality. I think that is the most important element uh, in all of this. And uh, we're looking right now, the other part of that uh, subtitle is, is the 2012 conundrum that we're, we're rapidly approaching. You know, it, it just it, it tickles me and horrifies me at the same time when I hear people say the Mayan calendar is going to end yeah. And the world is going to end and we're all going to die. First of all, I think there's 22 Mayan calendars, and none of them end. It's like saying our calendar ends. Our calendar doesn't end. The Maya have predicted out certain things out almost to the year 5,000. This is when three of their calendars click over into a new cycle, kind of similar to your car flipping over its odometer, the old analog odometers, to zero after it gets to 100,000 miles. There have been earth change type of events that have occurred in the past when, when these types of cycles have, have switched over. But you talk to Don Alejandro, some of the real Guatemalan, Highland, Maya, Kishmaya timekeepers, and they laugh when they, they listen to this pop culture programming that's, that you see on the History Channel even. It's, it's yeah. ridiculous. I saw on the History Channel they stated that the Maya went extinct uh, in the 1300s. The Maya are, are probably the largest group of indigenous Americans. There's there's like three and a half or four million Maya. How can the History Channel, where do they get off saying that the Maya are extinct? Well, well that's the whole what, thing about history, you know. I mean, how well, do you even believe history anymore if you want to have people run for president who believe the earth is 6,000 years old? Exactly. Uh, we're living in tricksterish times right now, and I think this whole idea of 2012 is very, very uh, similar to the whole uh, Y2K fiasco that went down. Everybody was in this place of fear that all our computers are going to crash and the world's going to grind to a halt and, 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 and all hell's going to break loose. Well, I think a similar kind of thing is... Is, is being set up for for Y2012K, if you will. And um, I think, you know, I mean, there's one uh, fairly well-known uh, uh, former UFO lawyer investigator type who's going to jump off Bell Rock on winter solstice uh, 2012. Who's this? Who's this? Well, Peter Gersten, we know Oh, that is, idiot. Sure. <laughs> Jesus Christ, what a potato head. You mean the guy with the purple... Uh, uh, on UFO Watchdog, our buddy Royce Myers put him up in the the purple Merlin's outfit. So this guy was a lawyer. This potato head was a lawyer. He's the county he attorney. Really, he was a New York lawyer. David, he was a New York lawyer, and he actually succeeded in suing the government to recover classified UFO documents. Successful too. It's going to jump off of what in 2012? Bell Rock, which is a big uh, red rock formation here in the Sedona area. Um, I, I'm just I, the reason why I bring it up. I didn't want to digress here. The reason why I bring it up is because people have a tendency to be led by the nose, and the culture has a tendency to program beliefs systems and beliefs around events and, and circumstances and situations. And I think the media, I, I mean, I turned my, my TV off eight months ago. I mean, I 
I, I occasionally watch a movie or something, but I just will not abide this 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 doom and gloom that's being promulgated in the media. This uh, you know we're supposed to have a media that that looks out for the public's interest here. That 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 uh, you know where are the Woodward and Bernstein's uh, around nine uh, eleven, which again is probably my takes my vote as the most tricksterish event of the. Uh, the new millennium so far. Where is that fourth column? Uh, you know, that's is it the fourth column or fifth column? I think fourth column. Well, it's uh, gone. Basically, it's 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 exactly. It's, it, it went away in the movie network. I mean, it's gone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's well, I'm mad as now. hell, and I ain't going to take it anymore. And I, I just, I let my my two year thing to dish uh, dish network just uh, uh, lapse, and I didn't didn't sign back up. I, I just, I, I'm so tired of all the fear mongering and all the yeah. negativity that's being force fed. Uh, Western culture—it's it, to me—it's—it's it's creating a belief that could be very dangerous and very powerful, even though it's not real and true. Yeah. The very belief that these horrendous things are going to happen, this crazy movie that's out right now, 2012, the number one movie in the, the nation. Uh, I mean, all this stuff is... It well, has actually, it's now the third power. most popular movie, The Vampires Took Over. Oh, there you go. Okay. So, you know, I rest my case. <laughs> Uh, I, I think that this this type of programming of the culture is extremely powerful, and I, I don't think enough attention is being placed on the effect of this programming process on the collective psyche. I think that we are we are really playing with fire by by allowing our media and our you know the the people that program us as a culture to to get away with all this negativity that's happening i don't think that 2012 is we're going to be here on december 22nd 2012 there's no doubt about it of course the maya and the hopi and and some other cultures are saying that we are headed into some pretty interesting uh, times in terms of the health of the planet in terms of what the planet might might be up to like shaking fleas off a dog but um, again, you can't you can't really buy into this stuff. I'm like David. I just you know I try to be as rational and logical about about my life and about things that I see going on in my life and, and all around me. You know, I try to be as logical and, and rational as possible. But man, I'll tell you, we are programming some real irrational thinking into yeah, into no culture question. right now. No so that's why 2012 is in you know in the uh, the title of uh, the subtitle. Uh, you of, put it in the title to sell books. Yeah, it's not going to sell books in 2013. Well, maybe you can have the edition, the special edition uh, uh, for 2013. Uh, if we're still around, you have the special edition of Stalking the Tricksters, <laughs> special yeah. 2013 edition. Yeah, I wish I had a $10 bill for every day the world was supposed to end and we were all going to die. You and me both. Okay, so uh, establish the world's not going to die. At 2012. Well, it might. Life. It might. You never know. The world could end know. tomorrow, man. The world could end tomorrow. That's but then we won't have time to predict it and to basically sell movies. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. You know what? And and to which I say, turn on the TV. Look at what we've done to the planet. Look what we've done to each other. Give the ants a chance. Yeah. Give the ants a chance. What are humans? What you know? And this is where this is where I go all angry human at the end of the episode. Yeah, we Well, yeah, life out of balance. We like to think we're these noble creatures. It's the I'll tell you. Well, you oh, see, man. that's what, of course, Ray Palmer said a long time ago. I've said this a number of times on the show. The flying saucers are here to make us think. Boy, at the very least, I think you're right. I don't. I don't think they've helped Michael Sala a goddamn bit. 
Well, it didn't say everybody think, you know, there are. I don't think Steve Greer is thinking. I think Paula Harris. Well, I don't think she's thinking either. I think she's thinking about chocolate cake. This is where I get gratuitously mean. This is the part of the show where uh, we trash other guests. See, we're not trashing the guests we've had on after he's gone. We're trashing other guests. Well, David, I'm really glad that you didn't. Uh, you didn't. Uh, you were actually very kind and gentle, and you used lubrication with me on this interview. I was kind of cringing because I, I, again, I do admit that my, you know, my attempt at a, at a unified field theory for the paranormal, as I've kind of dubbed it, is, uh, it, you know, it, it's at least a step forward in thinking, but it does have a lot of holes, and hopefully, my second book will will fill in some of the holes a little bit. And uh, you know what we're going to find out, Chris. You know what physicists are going to find out? They're going to find out that the single, the idea of a single unified field theory is silly. There is no such thing. There is no such thing as a single unified field theory in paranormal, not in physics, not in psychology, not in biology, not in anything. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. So, what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We're talking to Christopher O'Brien, author of Stalking the Tricksters, Shapeshifters, Skywalkers, Dark Adepts, and 2012 That We Whisper. Now, are you going to have a sequel called Finding the Tricksters, Grabbing Their Hair, <laughs> Pulling yeah. Their Fingers, Cutting Off Their Fingernails? What will the second well, book be the called? The working title for my second book is Driving Miss Trickster. Oh, boom, boom. Thanks. That was a joke. You got it, David. I, I am He's trying to it. lose it. Just a moment, please, 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 please. Okay, go ahead. I, I am working on a, um, a part two of this particular. I, I kind of envision it as a trilogy, really. And uh, there's a lot of elements in the first book that I didn't cover, including the men in black, uh, which I think are very important trickster forms that are a direct tie-in to the uh, the ufological uh, mystery. Uh, and there are other uh, areas that I just I didn't dive into. And I also want to have a section in there on some possible ideas and, and methodology to identify certain tricksterish events in, in your everyday life. Uh, I think coincidence and synchronicity are 
an indication of some sort of mechanistic process that 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 we can possibly uh, examine and uh, gain some insight and and possibly even utilize uh, in our lives. And and uh, I, I I'm really I feel inspired by the subject matter because I do feel it is a step forward. And perhaps there is no unified field theory for the paranormal, but it's sure cool to try to try to establish uh, at least the possibility. Oh yeah, sure and absolutely. Well, I think one of the problems that we have with the UFO field, specifically many of the people who are involved today are repeating the same mistakes that they made back 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. I mean, if you look at UFO literature in the mid-50s, what were they writing about? They were writing about disclosure. They didn't use the word disclosure. They would talk about government secrecy. Okay, let's find out what the government knows about this. When will the spaceships land? How will we greet them? Etc., etc. Much of the conversation is the same. Yes, because it's 50 years later, the way we speak about it's a bit different. But nothing ever changes. We need some new thinking here. It's unfortunate that we got into this kind of thinking, trying to encompass a lot of mysteries with a single explanation or a few explanations back in the 60s and 70s, and then we went back to E.T. Yep, and I think it's infinitely more complex. Of course, you can't factor in or out any... Uh, ETH, uh, in my uh, opinion, uh, I think that we are, you know, involved in a very complex formula here. I think there's all kinds of operative elements uh, that are coalescing and interrelating, uh, you know, their agendas, uh, you know, layering one upon the uh, the other. How do we know that it's not ETs using trickster tools, manners, and methodology to come and confound us? There's so much, uh, you know, looking at the UFO uh, mystery, there's so much, and just tricksterism uh, that's run rampant through it. And I think Jacques Vallée in his book, uh, Messengers of Deception and Passage to Magonia, brought out some very good points. John Keel brought out some very good points. But nowhere do they ever equate some sort of trickster force or trickster uh, uh, mechanism uh, as as being somehow related to this. And and I'm, I, I would like to think that I'm at least making a, a you know, a a well-intentioned uh, attempt to take this whole thing uh, a step forward and, and get out of the box and, and look look at it uh, in, in a new and creative way. Well, part of the problem with John Keel is that he came up with great ideas, but he wasn't a really good researcher. So it's easy to pick apart his arguments, some of his evidence. And that's what some people who are more dedicated to the craft of pure research are doing. And that's why when we had our John Keel Memorial, they said, well, he was a crusty old man, his research wasn't good, but we liked him anyway. Let's have a toast, and that's the end of it. But that is very much what a lot of people said about John Keel. Yeah, yeah, but at least he attempted to, to look at things, I think, in, in a fresh, with a fresh uh, pair of glasses on. And, and, you know, I do feel that I'm standing on the shol- shoulders of giants. Uh, I'm, I'm really attempting to take the ball maybe a little further down the field. I'm hoping at the very least to inspire people to look at their reality possibly with a new fresh pair of glasses to to get creative in their thinking to maybe get outside of the box a little bit and you know like I said my theory does have holes in it but hey somebody's got to got to start thinking creatively and somebody's got to start looking at these things in new and different ways uh, in ufology we're as you pointed out Gene we're not very much further down the road than we were 60 years ago so I think this is uh 
at the very least, this is what I'm attempting to do. And, and I, I feel jazzed by this particular approach. I feel it, it, it does, in some sense, pass the smell test. And, and I do feel that there's some uh, fertile ground here that uh, should be explored. Well, one of the things that was brought up on last week's show with James Carrion of MUFON is the fact that there's government disinformation involved in different aspects of the UFO mystery. So is the government serving the function of a trickster in some respects? I don't think there's much question about that. Obviously, government is here to protect us and, and in, you know, in some way, shape, or form, control us. And by you know, acknowledging that they're more confused than we are, they're, they're actually doing themselves a disservice by admitting that they don't know what's going on, admitting they're not in control of our airspace or in control of the process. So if it is truly other and it's not some sort of exotic secret you know, technology that we're dealing with here, which I, I seriously doubt that it's to the extent some people would think it is. I don't think all UFO sightings by any stretch are, are tax dollars. But if the government is as confused as we are, then obviously they're going to try to co-opt and, and marginalize uh, the field by, by providing uh, disinformation and, right. and yep. manipulating groups and doing their control uh, games. I think that that's a very, uh, <laughs> I think, an obvious thing that's going on uh, personally. Well, it's like hiding in plain sight and putting a lot of garbage into the, into the playground so nobody knows what the garbage is and what the real stuff is. Yeah, well, that's where good filtering uh, shows like the Paracast, I think, are, are, you know, for people that are getting started in this field. I, I, I really feel that this is a great resource for youngsters who, who want to get involved in this, want to get past the, the pop culture programming. Not enough creative thinking is, is going on right now in, uh, in the paranormal realm. I mean, we didn't really have a chance to talk about some of my haunted side investigations that I've been doing over the past five years. And I, I, I feel that there's a lot of exciting scientific work that's being done in the field, but, but I think we, we really have to take it, uh, we have to tighten the belt up one notch and, and, and you know, really get creative in our thinking and, and use the powers of analytical science and, and, and scientific investigation to, to, you know, get a little better handle on what we're dealing with. Yeah, Amen. speaking of trickster things, I'll just drop this one thing and, of course, Everybody could say it's ridiculous, but years ago, I had a really beautiful fire engine red car built, all the options and everything. I certainly spent more money than I had. And I said, you know what? I'm going to have fun. I'm going to have a custom license plate, 3MIB, okay, for obviously for three men in black. Talk about <laughs> tricksters. This was the worst car I'd ever owned. <laughs> Within 1,000 miles, the transmission fluid leaked. The transmission had to be rebuilt. It never stopped rattling. Need I go on? Oh, careful what you wish for. <laughs> Sometimes a lemon's a lemon's a lemon, you know? This was a fire engine red Pontiac, by the way. Of course, Pontiac. You bought a car based on its color? No. No, I just, right. we discussed it at the time, and we said, you know, let's have a red car. You know, it's like that. You decide. All right. We have a silver car now. Then we had a red car. All right. you know, for a number of years, we had white cars. And we haven't had a red car since then. Uh, kind of ending of the show is this. How did we go so far off the rails? You know what? This entire topic is off the rails because we don't the know where it's supposed here. to take us. Sure. Yeah. Ah, the sister has arrived. I lad, it goes with the territory you do. I guess so. Well, I love James uh, Carrion's uh, when he started out on his his uh, appearance where he said, "Well, we don't have uh, conferences on leprechauns.
leprechauns, so uh, we've got to have conferences on, on UFOs. I, just, I think there are conferences on leprechauns, though, aren't there? I think uh, there are. Probably. Uh, you know, you go to Glastonbury, there's a lot of New Agers that are still in touch with their elemental side. Look, bottom line is that, and we get attacked all the time now, more often than not, the Paracast is being attacked randomly online about, you know, trying to stake the claim that we know what's going on. And it's it's kind of an interesting sign to me when people say that, because it's clear to me that they're not listening to the show. We don't have a clue of what's going on here. We don't understand any of this stuff. I have never come on the show and said to Gene, Gene, I have the answer. I know why A and B and C are A, B and C. We don't have any answers. I mean, we really, truly, we search for them. We try to engage in Sometimes a reasonable conversation. Sometimes it's hard to do it. You know, the burnout factor on this stuff, I think, is very high. I'm actually amazed that people spend as much time as they do reading about this material because sometimes I just get to the point where I don't want to read another word about this stuff. I just want to go play some weird software synthesizer or screw around with Photoshop. It's like this stuff gets to be so much. And, and again, it's like, you know, to take any kind of a stance where you're questioning things. Is somehow seen as you not, you know, your your questioning is challenging, challenging, and challenging is not good. And to me, that that erosion of critical thinking, it, it will be the downfall of our species. I've I've really come to believe that personally. Boy, yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. I think creative thinking, keeping things fresh, being open minded, but but uh, grounded. I think are really important uh, qualities that we're slowly losing. I think collectively. I think there's too much reliance on wants and desires in the culture instead of, uh, you know, becoming more up to speed and, and well-versed in, in aspects of our reality that, that interest us. I think too many people are, are taking their mental switches and clicking off. Uh, there's, I, I don't think that there has been as many people in history walking around in a state of waking coma as there are right now. And that's unfortunate. And, yeah. and unfortunately, you know, the kids, I think we're, we're, we're doing our, our, the younger generation's uh, disservice by not, by not having more shows like the Paracast, by not having more creative thinkers out there uh, like a Mac Tones or, or uh, in his own way, Jacques Vallée. Uh, I think this is really important, and the kids deserve some inspiration in terms of getting that pair of new glasses to look at their reality. And, and this, if there's anything that I can accomplish with my work, it is to inspire others to really start getting creative and looking at things in a new and fresh manner. Hmm. All that right. serves almost as a We're sum up, that. but maybe before we go, we have just a couple of minutes left. This is your chance, Christopher O'Brien. Get up there and sell that book. <laughs> well, actually, it's doing pretty good. I'm almost into a second printing, so I'm, I'm striking a chord out there somewhere. I'm not sure uh, if that's totally uh, a good thing or not. Maybe I'm opening up Pandora's box. I don't know. I do have a website. It's OurStrangePlanet.com. I do have my book available there. Of course, it is available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and all your big you know, bookstores out there. So uh, I do encourage people to check out Stalking the Trickster. And also, if you want to uh, become a little bit more up to speed on my uh, investigative process, my book, Secrets of the Mysterious Valley, is a good summation of about 15 years of field investigative work that I did in the San Luis Valley in Colorado. Probably, in my estimation, America's most anomalous region. That sounds almost anomalous. What do you have coming out next that we can look forward to, seriously? Well, I'm working on a series of video projects. Uh, one is uh, on some very interesting haunted sites here in the state of Arizona. 
I'm also working on a uh, probably the first real uh, scientifically viable triangulated, coordinated uh, three-camera setup, uh, which will be going into the San Luis Valley in the spring. I'm having uh, some customized software designed that will link the cameras. Uh, it's uh, very exciting. Ray Stanford is designing some base station experiments with lasers and acoustic instruments and other scientific processes that we're going to put in as well. Um, I've gotten permission to put this system in in very, very viable locations and uh, Sawatch County uh, does appear to be the most, there's 256 sightings per capita there in terms of 10,000 in population and um, it is one of the most active areas in the country and to actualize my vision of a three camera triangulated setup, pan tilt zoom, all coordinated, all net uh, capable uh, is something I've been working on off and on for years. Uh, this is almost being made a reality. I'm really excited about it, and at some point, I'm sure we're going to be talking about this. I don't believe it's ever been done. Uh, this is a real step forward for scientific hard data ufology. I'm also going to be, uh, you know, working all through the winter on this. So this is a major front burner project that I'm uh, currently involved with. We hope to hear more about it from you in a future appearance of the Paracast. Christopher O'Brien, author of Stalking the Tricksters, Shapeshifters, Skinwalkers, Dark Adepts, and even 2012 that we say with a whisper. Thanks for joining us this week on the Paracast. You guys are great. It's my favorite show out there, you guys. Thanks, Chris. We love you, man. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.